Back on the show is Dr. Nick Winkleman, the head of athletic performance and science for the Irish Rugby Football Union and the author of The Language of Coaching. Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. Uh, so let's say I'm, I'm all in, I'm bought in, uh, I want to do this, you know, I bought the book, I've read it. Um, now, how do I, how do I practice it, implement it? And then how do I know if I'm being effective? You know, as coaches, we don't necessarily get feedback from someone, um, you know, watching us. We, we're just kind of out there <laughs> going through it. Okay. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Here's, here's crazy. Like, check this out. You asked about KPKR, KPKR, Right. Is their knowledge of performance improving? Mm -hmm. Is their results improving? I mean, that's it. It, it is that dead simple. And this goes back to what I said, you know, very early on. And that is, I was so focused on coaching the program. I forgot that I was supposed to coach the person. And so look up, wake up, be present and just pay attention to about the athlete's attention, pay attention to the impact of your words on their movement. Now, the second you start to really pay attention to what came out of your mouth or what drill you designed and the echo of it in the athlete, a few things start to reveal themselves to you. First one is, let's say I'm working with that athlete who's leaning to the right. You know, hey, John, we're, st- we're still leaning to the right. Remember, I need you to get tall. We need that trunk nice and vertical. I need a high reach. I need you reaching up over that wall, smacking down, coming through, right? And making sure you're as powerful in the follow-through as possible. John, that's a lot of information. What the heck did you focus on? I've got no idea. You probably have no idea. And so if we're trying to do little mini research projects, we have to recognize that we've got to build movement one cue, one idea at a time. And so I might say, hey, we're leaning too much to the right. We've got to get the space between the reach and your foot as far as possible away. Right now, that lean is bringing you down. To do that, John, right, let's focus on this. And that's where it's one cue. It's Mm -hmm. one idea. And then it's simply trial and error. Is that thing making a difference? Do I reiterate it? Do I refine it? Or do I retire it? And here I'm specifically talking about the use of language. But you can think about the same thing being applied to a physical constraint, right? Did the physical constraint work? Reiterate it, do it again. Was it almost there? Maybe you refined it a little bit. Did it not work? Did it backfire? You retire it all together. And so for me, that's the key thing that we're looking at when it comes to to the coaching side of things is that are we drawing that relationship between what we say and how they move? And so step number one is, is awareness, Oftentimes, awareness is going to lead to consolidation or pursuit of being concise or making brevity your best friend. And so usually the awareness tells me I need to say less. And that's cool. And then as I start to say less, I then become interested in like, okay, how do I optimize what I say when I say it? And that's where the models I've presented, the, the external cue model, the analogy model are meant to be very helpful in people developing the internal app, the internal machinery 
for cue creation. Um, prior to that, though, what I usually encourage people to do is become aware, start to rev your trial and error machinery, then start to reflect on your current use of language. Where are your gaps? Do you use a lot of internal body-oriented technical language? Do you use a lot of external environment outcome-oriented language? Do you use a lot of analogies? Do you find that you have the same three cues for every technical error and your approach when they don't work is to say them louder more often, right? Or are you a flexible, adaptable cure? Do you know how to work with the athlete to co-create and collaborate around the words that work for them? And so as you start to do that, you'll realize, wow, I can now step in and use these models to come up with external cues, to come up with analogies, to fill, to fill those gaps. But the key thing is this, <laughs> this isn't like buying a piece of equipment. We are talking about behavior change and behavior creation at the level of a coach. Coaches know how difficult it is to develop and break habits in their players. And so they need to go into this with the excitement and the realistic awareness that it's no different for their own coaching behaviors. Because what we are talking about here is invisible to so many coaches. What they say, how they say it is invisible. And rarely, rarely do they hold themselves accountable for that being the source of improvement in their own work practice. And so that's why I'm trying to shine a light on it and provide a pathway to improve it. But it starts very simply with awareness. Get off the program and focus on the person. What role do you see praise playing uh, with communicating with your athletes? Praise for me is, th th there's, there's two levels here with praise, okay? Number one is psychosocial. Are you creating an environment that people want to be in? Do they feel like they are getting um, respect and recognition for meaningful improvement, right? So the strategic use of praise, I think praise can be overused mm -hmm. and it can be seen as, what's the word I'm looking for here? False praise where a coach wants to create uh, an, an energy, a belief that, hey, everything's fine. Everything's great. As they say in Ireland, you're grand. But the player's like, coach keeps telling me I'm doing so freaking well, but we keep losing. And my statistics are the worst they've ever been. And then that creates this internal conflict, which will create anxiety. And that you have the trusted leader, the source of truth saying one thing, but your own personal assessment objectively saying something else. And so I think false praise can be as toxic as no praise or excessive negativity. And so I think what we're looking for here is accurate praise mm -hmm. or even I, I like a accurate recognition. When a threshold of improvement or a threshold of commitment towards improvement, right? So process versus product, process versus outcome has been achieved. Are we simply naming it? Not inflating it, but naming it. John, 
I've seen that this week you've gotten in early every single day. Really well done. This is going to allow you to achieve those outcomes we want. Mm. No more, no less. I recognized what was done. I've named it. And maybe I give it an appropriate social label of good, great, amazing, terrific, might be over the top. And so I think that the, the more important thing, Billy, is what you're praising. That is the key for this. And this goes right back to Carol Dweck's work on mindset and, and growth versus fixed mindset in the more we praise the process, the more we praise the machinery of progress. The more we simply praise outcome, oftentimes that starts to undermine the effort needed to achieve the outcome and can inadvertently just suggest to people is, hey, I'm fantastic. I am my outcome. No, 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 no. We as humans, we are a process. And if we commit to process, improvement within certain physical limitations is limitless. And so this is where it's getting, it's praising accurately, naming things accurately, and focusing on more process praise than product. But certainly when someone does well, especially if it's reached a threshold of outcome, heck yeah, we celebrate it. But when my daughter comes home and says she's done something, you know what I say? I say, that is fantastic. All the effort you put in to get that. Just see, aren't you proud of yourself? So even when I praise outcome or praise the product, I still bring it back to process. That's, I think, the secret sauce around praise. Well, and when you mentioned, sorry, real quick, when you mentioned threshold of outcome, is that just like performing a skill that they weren't able to perform in the past or a big jump? But ex exactly, exactly. So if someone's made a, a significant improvement, whether it's a technical improvement, whether it's a, a result improvement, maybe it's a statistical improvement, maybe it's an attitude improvement, Billy. That's the other thing. Oftentimes we think praise is strictly related to the skill expression. No, 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 no. I think we also want to be praising the characteristics and the behaviors that we know will lead down the road to better process and, and, and outcome as well. But yeah, you know, has a certain noticeable practical level of change occurred that warrants you saying something and identifying it. Right. That makes sense. Um, what are some of the most common mistakes you see coaches making when it comes to language? Oh Lord. Okay. Uh, we've, we've covered many of them. Um, number one is we say way too much. We say way too much or put differently. We say way too much right before they move. That's another way to put it. So we might have a team set. We might have a, you know, a, a video analysis session. You, you probably do this before you go on the court, maybe. And usually a video analysis session is going to highlight some of the key skills you're focusing on, maybe some of the tactical elements, and you might outline what's going on in practice. Now that might take for some people, it might be short, others, it might be longer. Let's just call it a, a 30 minutes. That, that's a lot of information. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about now we're actually physically on the court and I'm giving you a dissertation about technique, what you should focus on, what you should feel. And I'm not clearly signaling to you what should stand out, what should be the singular focus. And so the, the, the analogy I use is this. How many addresses do you put in a GPS? One. I've got one body trying to achieve one thing. 
put one address in the GPS. So if you want to go through technique, do a quick little on-court video analysis, go for your life. But do take the deep breath and say the following. Now, to achieve that, focus on this. And that this is one thing. It's the address in the GPS. It's the conductor's wand. It's a central focus that will guide the next repetition or next set of repetitions. So that, that's number one. If, if people just did that and paid attention to how many things they're asking the person to simultaneously think about and bring that to one, I think that would make coaching would change forever. Just a footnote on that is coaches inadvertently confuse memory with attention. They think that just because, Billy, I could give you three cues. I could say, stay tall, push the ground away, and try to contact the ball at the highest point. And I could say, what were the cues? And you could say, stay tall, contact the ball at the highest point, push the ground with three cues. It's like patting your head and rubbing your tummy. You cannot simultaneously think about all three of those things in any one moment. So do not confuse how many things they can remember with how many things they can focus on in one instant. It's the myth of multitasking. And so one cue, one rep. That's number one. Um, the, the second piece, we've been, we've been getting at this, and we name it in the book, and that is this idea of, of internal versus external language. So internal language is technical body-oriented language. So referencing joint position, muscle activation, limb position. Internal language should be used to describe a movement. Hey, elbow goes here. Your foot goes here. Your trunk goes there. Your trunk's leaning to the right. We need it upright. Right? Internal language is the description. External language relates to the outcome I'm trying to achieve contact the ball at the highest point or the interaction with the environment to achieve that outcome, explode off the ground. If I reference the ground or the ball, I'm not drawing your attention to the micro. I'm not saying, hey, think about the elbow, the hip, the knee, the trunk. I'm saying, no, here's an outcome to be achieved and allows the entire symphony to play as one in achieving it. And so external language and analogies, they work together that is the language of coaching. So internal is the language of description. External is the language of coaching. Now, I want to give an anecdote to illustrate how those are different. Because some might say, well, can I, can I use language of description to help the person move better? And, and certainly you can. I, John, I might say, hey, you need to get taller in your posture. Now, I may just leave that as a floating comment. But in my world, I find that there's a more effective way to, to, to turn that internal language into something productive. I say, listen, your, your posture is leaning too much to the right. What do you think you can focus on on your next serve to straighten up? You see what I've done there? Now we have a dialogue and rarely are they gonna say, hey, I need to get my thoracic spine stacked over my hips. No, they're gonna say, I need to get tall or I can imagine this. And we can even encourage that curiosity to get them to the external cue or the analogy. But here's the anecdote. Have you ever heard an athlete say the following? Coach, I know what to do. I just don't know how to do it. How many of your athletes can watch a video and give you a, a, a beautiful biomechanical breakdown of, of serving 
or digging or body position. I'd imagine most of them, at least by graduation. Yeah. Do you find that there's a correlation between their ability to describe biomechanics and achieve them? Ah, sometimes, but not all the time. Thus, there's not a correlation. Have you ever seen a great volleyball player who was a professional who became a coach who was miserable at it because they just looked at everyone and it boggled their mind? How do you not know how to do this? They didn't have any language to reverse engineer their movement. But then you probably have coaches who can articulate it brilliantly. Doesn't mean that they can physically do it. And so there is nothing, there's nothing inherent about having internal language about a movement that parlays into your ability to perform it. And so this is what comes back. We now know this. We haven't gone through all the evidence, but there's over two decades of evidence and now approaching two decades of experience with the, with the voice you're listening to and plenty of coaches to back this up, that internal language is shallow in its ability to make significant, lasting, performative learning changes in movement. It's very good for upgrading my knowledge about what to do, not very good about helping me learn how to do it. That's where external language and analogy comes in. It allows me to focus on outcomes, impacts, and analogies that hide technical jargon through the nature of the outcome I'm encouraging. Rather than telling you to stay tall, I can simply say, imagine there's a wall to your right. And then I don't burden you with all the joint by joint stuff. You can just focus on moving as if. And so there's a, literally, my book, the whole book is on this topic. So we could say a lot more, but that's the key mistake people make. They think that internal language is a surrogate for external language. It's not, you need both, but it's external language and analogies that should occupy the mind while they move. That's great. So we just have one more. And speaking of external yeah. language, it's from a, a listener named Harjeev Singh, who uh, worked yes. under, got his PhD under Gabby Wolf. Uh, and his question is over my head. So you'll have to probably <laughs> work with us here. <laughs> we'll I'm we'll land it. the plane here, John. We'll yeah, I'm going to read it yeah. to you and you can take us home. Uh, <laughs> there's some evidence to suggest that temporal adverbs such as while, after, or quickly interact with how language is comprehended and in turn, how the motor system performs. Where do you think the role of adverbs fit in when it comes to coaching language? Good luck. Yeah, my goodness. So <laughs> adverbs for me, have, have we all seen, have we all seen uh, uh, Fast and Furious? It's like yeah. you already have a really fast car. That's the verb, right? Explode, blast, launch. And the adverb is kind of like NOS, okay? It just, it just gives it a little bit of oomph, it gives it a little bit of emphasis. You know, I want you to explode rapidly. I want you to explode quickly. It's almost redundant, right? Explode rapidly, explode quickly. But what it does is it gives you two different access points to the same meaning. It allows you to almost see it and hear it twice. It's like an exclamation mark at the end of a sentence. It gives you emphasis. Now, people might be thinking, geez, does one word matter? Okay. I think we can prove to your listeners, absolutely it matters. However, you only can get the benefit of these one word changes if you only provide one cue at a time. If I provide you with three or four cues, it doesn't matter if I change one word in one of those cues. They're not picking up on any of that detail. 
But when all I give you is one cue, one focus, one address in the GPS, every bit of that address matters, doesn't it? I need the number. I need the street. I need the zip code. I need the town. And so uh, imagine for the listeners that they are running as fast as they can, maybe away from something down a track. And we're going to do a quick thought experiment, two different cues. And I'm going to change one word. I want you to drive, as you're running, I want you to be driving into the ground. Drive into the ground. Okay, that's the preposition if we're talking grammar here. Uh, so think about that. Go through a simulator. Drive into the ground. How that inhabits, how that feels. Now I'm going to change into to off of. Okay, folks are driving off of the ground. Off of the ground. Do those feel the same? John, Billy, do those feel the same to you? No. No. Okay. One more really quickly. Do the words push and punch feel the same to you? (laughs) No. Which one's more violent? Punch. Which one feels slower? Push. Push. Okay. So one word, one word difference hidden with, see, when we learn language, language is built on movement. It's built on our physical experience with the world. Before you learn the word door, you know it's this rectangular thing that opens and closes and allows you to access the treat in the pantry or not, right? You have a physical experience with language well before you are given the label that we call language and words. And so this is why language matters. Words matter. When we hear a motivational speech, a turn of phrase, a quote, a song, all that is language, but it can literally move people. And what we're talking about is the literal use of language to move people. And so Harjeev is correct in pointing out that one word matters, but it only can matter when we provide one cue at a time. And so the, the, the richness here it can drive coaches throughout the rest of their career. And I will tell you, when, when you lean in to language, it is transformative, not only for the coach, but more importantly, for the athlete. And a uh, quick question before we end, do you, have any, do you recommend coaches that are starting this, like build a library and keep track of all these analogies and the language in order to develop it? Or do you just remember it really well uh, through years of experience? You, you know, uh, yes, <laughs> no, it's both, right? It's really, it's really both, Billy, because early on, let's use a crude analogy. You're trying to download this coaching app in your mind. That's really what we're talking about. You're trying to download this behavior where you can real time create and curate uh, effective language and cues. And so early on, I find that, yes, if you take, and I, and I do this in the book, you take your movement skill, you break down the coachable features of it. And let me emphasize that the coachable features of the movement and put differently. It's just the stuff you coach all the time. And then, yeah, you, you create two columns, maybe three columns, internal language you use to describe it, external language. And then it's going to be a, a very long column analogies. And so, yeah, maybe you, you try to come up with five to 10 for each. What I find with individuals is one, that's a good exercise to do no matter what, because then you can share it with other coaches. 
especially if you have multiple coaches on your staff, maybe you keep adding to it. And also it becomes a reference point. Hey, Sally over there does really well with that cue or Johnny over there does really well with that one. And it starts to allow you guys to build a shared vocabulary for whatever players you have at a given time. But here's the cool thing. The process of building those grids helps you download the machinery of cue creation. And so inevitably you will no longer need them if you create them has been my experience. This is great. Nick, uh, you are a gift to the coaching community um, to have your academic knowledge and then your ability to translate it and make it captivating and make it useful is really rare. And so just so thankful for all your work and, and that you continue to put it out and you're making us all better. So we appreciate it so much. John, that's one of the nicest things someone has ever said to me, full stop. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, it's, it's honest and true. So thanks. Thanks so much. This was amazing for us and we're going to go to work now. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Best of luck to everyone listening.